So welcome to our workshop. Like I said, it is titled Building a Beloved Community and Why It's Essential for Every Church. You will hear two presentations, one from me. My name is Erwin Lopez, and I am the co-chair of the Beloved Community alongside Alice Williams. And then Alice Williams will be logging in a little later, and she'll be sharing a little bit more about the Beloved Community from what's been happening in the Florida Conference. What I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be giving you just a, an overview of the beloved community by giving you a historical background, some biblical examples, some Wesleyan perspectives for you to consider, and some practical steps. I will share that I've only been the co-chair of the beloved community since January, and so um, I've been researching and learning about what it means to establish a beloved community, the history of the beloved community, and I'm very excited to share with y'all and it's been a passion of mine, and it's something that I, I hope to continue for a long time, and I hope that you um, will begin to share this message with your churches. Um, so let's start with a little bit of the historical background. <clears throat> the idea of the beloved community originated with a philosopher from Harvard University named Josiah Royce. Um, and then Martin Luther King developed and further developed that idea as a vision so that, so we could all live in harmony together. And then after Martin Luther King passed away, there was a, a Zen monk and many other teachers that wanted to expand this vision um, to include all forms of life. But I wanted to first begin with Josiah Royce um, and tell you a little bit about him. Uh, as I mentioned, he was a philosophy professor at Harvard. And in 1913, he wrote this, my life means nothing either theoretically or practically, unless I am a member of a community. And he observed that besides the actual communities we experience in our daily lives, there was also this ideal of a beloved community made up of all those who were dedicated to the cause of loyalty and truth. And Royce did not see the community as a static object, but as an all-embracing radical idea of unity for the whole human race. He further expands on this um, with his, um, he was the leading American proponent of absolute idealism, the metaphysical view that all aspects of reality, including those we experience as disconnected or contradictory, are ultimately unified in the thought of a single all-encompassing consciousness. And so I felt like it was important for me to share just a little bit about Josiah Royce and have you just think about that statement there of, at the end of the day, there's this all-encompassing consciousness, this all-inclusive reality, right? And King studied this and studied these concepts and expanded on them, and he began to speak about the beloved community. And so <clears throat> for Martin Luther King, you can see this in his writings, that his end goal was beloved community. His end goal was to create a community that was all-inclusive. And it wasn't only the end goal of his speeches, but it was also the end goal of his boycotts, and even of some of the leadership conferences that he established. And Check out these bullet points. In one of his first published articles, he stated that the purpose of the Montgomery bus boycott is reconciliation, redemption, and the creation of the beloved community. And so we often talk about Martin Luther King having a dream, but what was that dream? That dream was to establish this type of community. In 1957, writing in the newsletter of his newly formed Southern Christian Leadership Conference, he described the purpose and the goal of that organization as follows. The ultimate aim of the SCLC is to foster and create the beloved community in America where brotherhood is a reality. The, C the SCLC works for integration. Our ultimate goal is genuine intergroup and interpersonal living. And in his latest book, he declared, our loyalties must transcend our race, our tribe, our class, and our nation. And so I want to just pause there real quick just to mention that 
for, for me, this is important because <clears throat> King was inspired by a bunch of different voices. When his small groups were, were reading together, they weren't only just reading Christian writers. They were reading Gandhi. They were reading um, writings from Royce. And so for me, that's important because segregation isn't only something that we should be paying attention to paying attention to in terms of the communities that we surround ourselves with, but we should also consider whether we're even segregated in what we read, right? Because King, from the more I study him, wasn't only worried about segregation when it came to terms of race, but he also saw how we tend to segregate ourselves by class, by nations, and even by religion. And so this, these segregated communities had a purpose, but King wanted to bring them together so that we can work towards a common good. And that's why I feel like this message is important, especially for the church, because the church can be a segregated space, right? So let's continue to, to, to see um, King's vision. King's vision he wanted to completely integrate society and build a community of love and justice where brotherhood would be an actuality in all of social life. He envisioned a world where everyone strives to benefit from the common good. And he spent his life working to make sure that economic and social justice was a reality for all communities. And I think that's important too, because when it comes to thinking about segregated communities, we also need to talk about the economic injustice that many of them experience. I work at the University of Central Florida and I was talking to a PhD student and he was telling me that King got in trouble King, when he started talking about the economic aspect of the beloved community. He wanted to make sure that there was also a fair treatment, but also enough money for everybody and that those injustices were also being taken care of. And so remember, this aspect of beloved community, there's also an economic aspect to it. So King envisioned the beloved community as a society based on justice, equal opportunity, and love of one's fellow human beings. Dr. King's beloved community is a global vision in which all people can share in the wealth of the earth. In the beloved community, poverty, hunger and homelessness will not be tolerated because international standards of human decency will not allow it. Racism and all forms of discrimination, bigotry and prejudice will be replaced by an all-inclusive spirit of sisterhood and brotherhood. And so the beloved community was a community in which everyone is cared for, absent of poverty, hunger, and hate. <clears throat> We're going to continue here. Please feel free to ask questions. I can't see your questions right now or any comments or anything that may be rising up in you. Please share it in the chat and we'll discuss it in a little while. One of the most important things for me as a reminder is that King's vision was a Christian vision. It was a Christian vision. He gathered this from reading the scriptures from reflecting on what it meant to be a follower of Christ. He believed that every single person was created in the image of God and should therefore be treated like a child of God. And this is why he wanted to make sure that everybody was included regardless of their tribe or their affiliations or their backgrounds. And so that's a very important thing for me as a Christian and as a leader of the church, that we're not just making this up. King wasn't just making this up out of nowhere. He was inspired by the life of Jesus Christ to establish communities like this. And this is why, for me, I'm doing my best to create this kind of communities. Because I'm a Christian. So what does it mean to, be, to create an all-inclusive community? What is an all-inclusive community? Well, this is a community that includes everybody. It's not just an interfaith community. It's also a non-faith community. It's also people who may not necessarily believe in God, right? An all-inclusive community includes all people, everybody, regardless of their affiliation, regardless of what they believe in, right? But nevertheless, this community comes together for a common purpose, 
right? So they may have some differences in faith, non-faith, Jewish, Muslim, but can we come together for a common purpose and for king? It was to make sure that everybody had enough food and shelter, right? So I want to share with you just some biblical examples, because the more that I study this, the more that I see it in the scriptures, the more that I see it in the scriptures, and hopefully you will see it in the scriptures, because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. The other day, I was reading the story of the faith of the centurion from Luke. And there's a couple of stories of the faith of the centurion. Um, I think Matthew has a version, but Luke also has a version. And I want to read this to you. And I want to see if you can see the beloved community. Okay? When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to ask to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Did you catch it? Did you catch the picture of the beloved community in that scripture? Well, I hope you didn't. If you didn't, I want to highlight it for you. Because when I reread this text, I realized that in the story of Luke, the centurion actually never is face-to-face -face with Jesus. Check it out. Right there in verse 3. I highlighted it there. It says, The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews. He sent another group of people to preach this message. Right? And then we see it again. The centurion then sent friends. And so we have the centurion sending friends sending a group of Jewish elders to do what? To make sure that this servant would have the opportunity to live. And so when I heard this message, when I read this message, that's a perfect picture of the beloved community. We don't know who his friends were. We know that the centurion was of a different background, possibly of a different faith as well. And then we know the Jewish elders also were of a different faith. And so you have this conglomeration, this beloved community coming together for a common purpose. And that common purpose was to make sure that the least of these in this example was being taken care of. And I pray that the church would establish these types of communities. And so I highlighted this last part too, because when he turns to the crowds, he'd use... He, he uses the example of that community, the centurion, the friends, and the Jewish elders, as an example of great faith, right? And he turns to the crowds. He turns to this community, and he says, I have not seen this type of faith in any other community. This is a faith worth imitating, right? And so I love that scripture. And, and you could see this in other scriptures as well. Oh, wait, this is just a reminder of how the beloved community strives to create a world where everyone benefits from the common good, right? But there's other examples. The story of the Good Samaritan. These three individuals ignored this man on the side of the road, and it was a Samaritan working with the innkeeper, right, to take care of this man who was on the side of the road, another picture of the beloved community. Adam Hamilton does a great job of talking about the diversity during Jesus' birth when the Magi, who were likely astronom astronomers from different backgrounds, came together with the shepherds to celebrate the life of Jesus. You could even argue that this is present in the Gentile and Jew inclusion in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. 
And so I hope that when you read the scriptures that you will find it's not just followers of Jesus. It's not just Christians, quote unquote, who are coming together to help others. It's different types of people that are inspired by Jesus, inspired by this type of message. So I want to give you just a Wesleyan perspective on this, okay? See how much time we have here. It's 18. Okay, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I want to give you a quick Wesleyan perspective on this. I believe that we need to create and think about how to create more prevenient grace spaces. In the United Methodist Church, we believe in prevenient grace, justifying grace, and sanctifying grace. Prevenient grace is the idea that God is working in individuals before they even know that God is working in them. Justifying grace is the moment where we recognize God's free grace and we make a decision with our free will to follow Christ. And then sanctifying grace is the process of becoming holy and participating in the works of mercy and works of piety. And so prevenient grace is all-inclusive all-inclusive. Prevenient grace spaces are open to everybody, not just people who are interested in becoming a Christian. And this is crucial because part of the conversation of beloved community is also about diversity, how to diversify our spaces, right? And the church has often focused just on justifying and sanctifying. How can we get people to our worship services? How can we get people to our Bible studies? How can we get people into our discipleship programs? Well, those people who are coming to those programs are likely in the justification process because they've made a decision to go into something that seems interesting. But prevenient grace spaces is for everybody, not just for those who are ready to make a decision to enter a discipleship program. And this is important because just recently I was interviewed by um, a program that is seeking to diversify its, its programs. And, one, and I was in a group of people who are African-American, Latino, and they said, the reason why we don't go there is because we don't see videos or pictures of our people in those spaces. We don't feel safe in those spaces, right? And so if we want to diversify our spaces, think about how you can create more prevenient grace spaces, more spaces where everybody feels safe, where everybody feels welcome, where everybody feels that they can get a piece of the pie as well, and that there is no hidden meaning or, or no, no manipulation in terms of what uh, of why they're there, right? How can we create more prevenient grace spaces? So some more practical steps. Find inclusive elements, all-inclusive elements. What are the elements that bring people together? Food. Everybody gets hungry, you know? Everybody everybody loves food. Well, most people love food. Food is an all-inclusive element. Everybody needs shelter. Everybody needs money. (laughs) Prevenient grace is an all-inclusive element. I would also encourage you to see all-inclusive events as missional vital signs. Support minority-owned businesses. The other day I was at a, in a Jamaican restaurant. And one of the things that we do in our ministry is that we support local restaurants by buying gift cards. And then we have, we play bingo or we play games and then the winner gets a free gift card. And, and the restaurant wins, they get a new owner and they, and they don't have to lose money. And the person, sorry, they get new business and they can, um, and they, and they don't lose money because we pay them the money for the gift card. And as I was talking to the owner about that, there was somebody behind me, and the guy taps me and he said, "Hey, what are you doing this for?" And I said, "Oh, we believe in the beloved community, and we're doing this in in our college ministry." And he looks at me and he says, "You know, I want to let you know that I lost faith in humanity, but listening to what your program is doing." I've regained my hope in humanity. And to me, when I heard that, I thought to myself, isn't that a profession of faith, (laughs) right? And so see all-inclusive events, such as supporting minority-owned businesses and having those outreaches as missional vital signs. More practical steps. Financially invest in these programs. Remember, economy plays a huge role. Diversify, expand your leadership team. Diversify your reading. 
Get involved in communities that are creating systemic changes. Get involved in your anti-racism teams in your district or in your conference. And spread the message. Spread the message. I remember when I first was asked to uh, lead the beloved community, Sharon Austin, who um, is one of the supervisors and one of the, uh, the originators of, the, of this community and, and this um um, you know, this program that we do and this message that we spread. She said, Erwin, the beloved community is more of a message to be spread. And so I've committed my life to make sure I spread this message, teaching people that it is possible for different people to come together for the sake of the community around them. What time is it? 224? Okay, we're doing good. <clears throat> so I wanted to give you some more on the ground examples that we do in our ministry. I run a college ministry at the University of Central Florida, and I've been thinking about how to implement beloved community work in, into what we do. And this is what we've been doing, and it's been going pretty good. During the day, we open, and it's a, a free coffee shop. We do free coffee, tea, and, and water. And the reason why we do that is because we're trying to help college students save money, and they spend so much money on coffee and so much money on, on studying. Once in a while, we get them lunch, um, but, that space is open to the public. And so people of all types of backgrounds come in and I have conversations with the community, you know? Another thing that we do, the Wesley Grant. When COVID hit, we realized that there were a lot of students who needed financial help. And so we created a grant to help students with just a little bit of money because sometimes it doesn't take $10,000 to help a student. Sometimes all they need is $350 hundred dollars so that they don't begin to get into that cycle that can often for some students even lead to homelessness. Sometimes they just need a little bit of aid to get on the right track. And so we open this Wesley grant and we have phone calls about once every three weeks of somebody who is in need. And we partner with the university and it's been such a blessing for our um it's been such a blessing for our community. Uh, another thing that we do is we do community night for building relationships. Um, so community night is we just do a free meal for college students. And so college students come in and we have pizza, we have just a free dinner. And then we have, we'll have sometimes 50, sometimes 200 students and they'll come in and we'll just talk to them, build relationships, find out what's happening in the community, find out how we can support them. And then we change our programs according to the needs in the community. And that's where things like finance classes and group counseling have, have come through conversations um, in those community nights. And those finance classes are crucial because I've actually been inspired by a book titled West, uh, The Poor and the People Called Methodist. And one of the things that I read is that a lot of people who were poor would become Methodist because of the financial discipline that John Wesley would teach them. And they would actually climb the social ladder. Um, the, the, they would actually climb the, the social class because they were developing crucial skills um, for the everyday life. And so we're trying to offer some finance class for college students. The university reached out to us. They found out what they were doing and they said, we need more counseling services. So we're offering group counseling services. And so if you realize, all of these events are all inclusive. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be even interested in, in Christianity. We do this because we're a Christian. Okay, I got a couple more. One more slide I want to share with you, and it's this one. This is where my heart is. Why is the beloved community important? Well, number one, because it takes a village. Christians can't do it alone. Churches can't do it alone. We need to come together to make an impact in our community. It takes a village. Secondly, because we should offer hospitality because we're a Christian, not just to those that are interested in being a Christian. We should offer hospitality to everyone because we're a Christian. And thirdly, because our children need it. Our children need it. Our children need to see more spaces where people of different backgrounds come together, love one another, support one another, and make an impact in the community. Oftentimes, the church is the introduction to segregation for many of our children. If you think about it, they go to Publix, it's segregated. It's, it's integrated. They go to school, it's integrated. They go to the doctor, it's integrated. 
But then when they go to church, it's segregated. And so oftentimes we say worship is the most important time during the week, but it's the most segregated hour. And so that's my presentation um, on the beloved community. Hopefully I gave you all something to think about. Um, if you have any questions, you go ahead and put them in the chat. And <clears throat> now we're going to hear from Alice Williams. So, Alice, thank you so much for being here with us. And um, Irwin, the, floor, the floor is yours. Erwin, what a, what a great setup this was for the beloved community. And, and I loved what you had to say about the fact that we, there are practical things that we can do to help create the beloved community in particular things like making sure that we're supporting uh, minority businesses and, and going in those places where people may not necessarily think uh, that we can have impact but we can um i just want to lift up in, in this conversation a couple of things around how the the methodist conference the, the florida annual conference has thought about uh, being part of a beloved community and the ways that we are looking to help make that happen even more um, this started probably six, eight years ago uh, when Bishop Carter kind of challenged us to say, what can we do to help with the, the, the issue of anti-racism? What can we do to help folks to feel um, that we as, as a denomination want to step out in faith and in find ways to be the beloved community that we're called to be and help to create that? And in order to do that, we had to kind of stop and take inventory of, well, what are the things that we are doing and maybe what are the things that we aren't? And I got to tell you, I, last night, I happened to be on a uh, pre-conference workshop with uh, uh, Professor Dr. Ryan Bonfiglio, who talked to us about moving from a temple to a tabernacle kind of church. And I absolutely believe that that's that's creating the beloved community. It's understanding that we don't make our churches for people to come into and, and hope that they will just walk through the doors, but that we understand what it means to be able to be a church that moves out into the communities in which we're served, into our mission field. And I, I'm reminded of what John Wesley and, and Charles Wesley did about how they, they were Anglican, but they saw that the Anglican church had become kind of closed off, if you will, from the rest of the, the, the communities in the world uh, around them. And so they took it out into the fields. They took their message out onto the street corners. They went into the pubs and they, they started um, using the songs that, that, that people were familiar with from the pubs and stuff and put words to it so that they would know the tunes, but they would be able to tell the good news through the, through the words that they use. All of that is helping people to, or to reach people outside of our, our standard four walls of the church. And in my opinion, that's the biggest calling that we have right now as Christians is to be able to step outside of the brick and mortar of the church and look at the communities. And so much of what you were talking about, Erwin, is enabling us to do that. I love the thing about being provenient, right? We're looking for ways to create the provenient church, meaning that people understand no matter where they are, God's grace has been with them from the very beginning. And all that God wants is for them to be made whole and full in his likeness. And so how do we do that? Well, you, you, you nailed it. I mean, it's all about looking for ways to make sure that we aren't excluding anyone. Um, I heard someone say one time, Erwin, and I think it's a really cool thing, that those of us who are disciples, those of us who, who come into a relationship with God, our work is not about being in management. Our work is about being in marketing, right? Our work is about being able to get out and, and to share the good news. And then we let the Holy Spirit begin its work within each individual uh, to whatever their walk towards. We call it the walk towards perfection in the Methodist church, but it's all those things that we do to be able to enable us to grow in our discipleship. And so what I mean by that is all the things that you talked about about. We need to find ways to step out beyond the confines of caring for ourselves and being in the church to look for ways to be engaged in the community. So here's, here's some kind of cool ones that I've heard of just recently. During the pandemic, uh, especially in the Central Florida area, the Orlando area, we were hit really hard when uh, 
places like Disney and Universal had to go on hiatus. There were a lot of employees that were there, service sector employees, entertainment sector employees that were in uh, a really difficult spot as everyone was because they, they really, they were out of work. Uh, and a lot of the folks that are in a gig economy, right, were, found themselves out of work. So I know churches, I know of churches that got together and they said, you know, we need to find ways that we can help people get through this, uh, providing uh, food to put on their table to, to help with rent, that kind of thing. And one outcome of that, at least in the church that I was in, is we became affiliated with what they call GOFAR, which is the Greater Orlando Performing Arts Rescue. And the idea behind that was to, to be a resource for those individuals. And we gave away, I, I want to say it was close to like 40,000 pounds of food uh, to individuals who came through weekly uh, and, and helped put food on the table. And I know that there are a lot of pantries, food pantries and things like that out there. But what really struck me about this is that it was very targeted. And, and I do think that we need to be close enough to what's happening in our communities that we can hear and see the things that are happening around us to know, for example, that in our particular sense or, or situation, the entertainment community was the one that was hurt the most. Or when the people that you are working with right now, the young adults that are on the campus at University of Central Florida and all of our, our campus ministries, that is a very targeted and specific way that we can create the beloved community. They don't go off to college necessarily thinking that they're going to find the love, grace, and acceptance uh, on campus that they need. But wow, that's what we can do. That's a way that we can be there, and that's a way that we can support it. So those are just some of the things, Erwin. I, I know that I, I could go on for a lot longer, but I, I just I just want you to hear that the calling that we have as a church moving forward is, is one where we can no longer just be thinking about how to develop ourselves as disciples, but it's about how we move outside of our boundaries and going to where people are in need. That's one reason I love fresh expressions. Um, even if it's things like Bible, uh, ruined Bibles, we've got, we've got some of those uh, popping up all over where we're, we're actually going into to pubs and whatnot and, and meeting and, and, and meeting folks that would probably never walk through the doors of our church to help them to understand that they too are loved by God and that the same salvation message that we hear about is, is, is just as valid for them. So I just just some thoughts for when I don't know if that helps or not, but I love what you had to say and, and, and I just want to reinforce that we as the Florida Annual Conference are continually looking for ways that we can be I think that's great, Alice. Thank you so much. Um, I love what you said, especially in terms of, hold on one second, let me move the spotlight here. I love what you said, especially in terms of, we need to find ways to engage the community. We need to find ways to engage the community. And I would encourage you with this aspect of the beloved community, we need to find ways to engage the community without the need to indoctrinate them. Okay, without the need to indoctrinate them. Hopefully, they come to know Christ through that, right? That's always our heart and our goal. But we let's think systematically. Let's think about infrastructures. Let's think about how we can equip, educate. Let's think about those things. Let's, but let's think about it not just in terms of we have the answers for the community, let's get to know the community first. Go ahead, Alice, go ahead. Yeah. I was just gonna say, Erwin, you, you just made me think of something and I, I meant to say it. Um, I was just doing some research for, for another presentation that I had to do. And I, I came across this statistic and it really set me back a little bit. It was done, I think it was by Pew Research. Don't hold me to that, but I think it was done by the Pew Research folks. And when I say research, think survey, because I'm assuming that's the only way they would be able to do this. But they, they found that about 15% of people who come into uh, their understanding, love, and grace of God and, and develop a personal relationship uh, with Christ, that that, that happens through either a church experience or through a sermon or something that took place within the church. That's cool. And we're grateful for that. But here's the kicker. 
85% of what people attribute most to their spiritual development comes from either family influence, influence of friends, coworkers, uh, uh, people that they, they know, to, you know, share with them what, what God has done in their it, it really doesn't, it doesn't happen so much in the church. It reinforces, there's no doubt. And, and, and there are wonderful uh, you know, messages that we hear that help us to grow in our faith and the studies and the Bible studies and this kind of thing. But it's really and truly what we, all of us do and the way that we let our light shine, if you will, out in that community that you're talking about. The ways that it's not, it's not about the, the, the preaching of the church. It's about the living witness that we have out there that draw people to, to faith. So I think that's a really important thing as well. No, I would agree. Absolutely. And I would like to hear what y'all think. What do y'all think? Please share it in the chat so that we can um, have a conversation in that way. But I would love to hear what y'all think. What is happening in your head, in your hearts? Um, I, I wanted to share this story. Um, just recently, I recorded a podcast on the dangers of fentanyl. Fentanyl. I don't know if y'all heard about fentanyl, but it is the number one killer of people between the ages of 18 to 45. The number one reason why young people are dying is fentanyl. And so I reached out to this Christian program and I said, hey, can we make a presentation just to teach the high schoolers, because they're trying to target high schoolers, about the fentanyl crisis epidemic? And they said, no, 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 it's, we can't add in our program. But I said, it's the number one killer. Like We can't add in the program. And I had this revelation on this, and I, and I realized that we often only see salvation or saving people in the spiritual sense, and we prioritize that. But we need to see the spiritual in actually saving people's lives. That is probably one of the most spiritual things, if not the most spiritual thing that we can do, right? And so just the beloved community for me, as I've studied it the past couple of years, it's really changed the way that I, I view my Christianity. because. For a lot of my career as a pastor, I've been focused on justification and sanctification. How can I get them to confess Christ? How can I indoctrinate them? How can I grow the worship service? But this is a, it's a, it's a different philosophy. It's a different way of thinking. Um, we have a comment from Patty Opperly, and that is challenging to get the established church support to allow others to love others, even if they're not directly involved. Okay, well, Patty, this is a great question, a great comment, because it is challenging to change the status quo, especially when you're talking to the status quo, right? It is challenging to change the status quo. But there is one thing that makes a huge difference. You know what that is? Financial support. Financial support. If you can find the financial support to support a program like this, then you don't have to worry about the status quo. And I know the status quo has all the money, right? But if you begin to diversify your donors so that it's not just Christians who are supporting you, but it's people who believe in the beloved community, you'll actually get more support. And that's what I found in, I'm working in the, in the Wesley Foundation. We have more people who are willing to help with our programs for the Wesley Grant, with our programs for the coffee shop, because they see that it's not just a program to benefit Christians, it's a program to benefit college students. So I would, I would say, preach this message, get people involved in this, and you'll actually get more donors to support you. <clears throat> Another comment here. Let me see. Um, Starting this month, first meeting in May, I have launched a single adult small group ministry to hopefully gather together single adults 18 and older and not make it about a book or Bible study as of yet, but just get folks together at community events, meals, to gather and celebrate Jesus. One group is named Party of One. We may be single, but Jesus is always with us. Nice. Okay, great. So you're getting people involved, reaching out to the community in, in, a, in a new, unique way. Great. And then I would just encourage you to listen. Listen. To the, to the people. Study the people, their habits, their cultures, their speech. And through those 
relationships, you'll be able to determine what programs your church can start to help them. Great, great job. Last night's workshop with Dr. Hit, hit on the nail. Move out of the table and be mobile. Yes, be mobile. Services outside, maybe single, but you saw it. Um, hold on, I missed that one. It says be mobile. Services outside the building will reach more people than inside. Yes, go outside the building. Great. Great ministry. Okay, great. Um, well, Alice, you want to share anything else? Or I can always talk, I can always keep on talking, but I I hope that this has opened up your eyes and your heart. I hope that as you read the scriptures, you'll see the beloved community in it. It's in there. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It really is. Um, so, so Erwin. Yeah. I, I just, uh, I finally got to the stationary spot. And, and I need to apologize. You probably all think I'm terrible for being this way. Uh, we just laid to rest my last living uncle, uh, my brother's, my mother's brother. Uh, and uh, I am reminded of his witness and his life um, because this morning I went across the street in the hotel to a Hardee's where he used to go to. I knew that he used to go in there and I walked in and uh, as I ordered my meal, I just made mention to the person at the counter. I said to them, this is a place that my uncle used to come where we're laying him to rest today. And I just, uh, I just want you to know that, you know, he talked about each one of you here because he would, you know, when I tell us stories about the people that work at one. That to me is the beloved community. It didn't matter, it didn't matter color, it didn't matter uh, how much money they had in their bank account or any of that. He got to know people just for who they were. And I think that's part of what we have to do as well, Erwin, is, is we've got to invest ourselves, not only get the financial support, we need that. There's no doubt about that too. But it's it's going to require that we invest ourselves much the same way that my uncle used to do, by just spending time with people and hearing their story and and and, and letting them know that that they matter just for who they are. So I just wanted to add that before you wrap it up. No, it's great. We have a question here from David Williamson. It's a great question, and one that I thought a little bit about. And Alice, if you want to chime in here, that'd be great. He says, I appreciate your comment about missional vital signs. Can you say more about what questions or metrics you would think would be good for churches to ask or measure if they want to become a beloved community? Oh. I, can, I can share with you, I, I, really quickly, I can share with you what we talked about last night in the temple tabernacle kind of thing, um, that instead of, for example, looking at worship attendance, we would look at what is, where have we seen witness? Where have we seen where the, you know, people have been able to share in some way or partake in some way or be engaged in some way in a different way? So not attendance, but what's the fruit of that? Where, where, what are people doing around that? Um, and instead of looking at sacred spaces, looking at third spaces. So don't just look at, you know, like, how are we using the, the sanctuary for worship, but, but where are those third spaces where people are spending time? Uh, and, and how are we using the facilities that we do have? Are they just busy during the week or are, I mean, during on Sunday or are they being utilized and used during the week kind of thing? And are there, are there spaces that, that we are making available for the community for the needs of the community or, or whatever that would look like? And then the other thing that he talked about is Instead of thinking about hospitality in our churches, ways that we might be more hospitable, ways that we might be more welcoming, which is important, don't get me wrong. But he said, how are we as congregations being good neighbors in the communities in which we serve? So how are we thinking about ways that we are neighboring uh, in the communities that we're in? And then the last thing that he mentioned, he said, you know what? In the, in the temple area, it was all about the priests. Right, that there were places where the, only the priests could go. There were the priests led everything, and and oftentimes, and I'm speaking to the lady here. Oftentimes, we still kind of do that. We look to our clergy or we look to our church staff to be able to create the experiences and that kind of thing and lead us. And unfortunately, it's kind of caused us to be consumers. We call it kind of being consumer church. So 
But what we were reminded of in this, this conversation about temple to tabernacle is that it takes all laity, all lady. And just one, one other piece to that kind of, and I, I don't know, I don't know what you do with this or when, but it was just something that struck me. This past week, we celebrated Pentecost, right? And Pentecost is where the Holy Spirit fell on those that were gathered together and, and they were empowered. It wasn't the first time that they experienced the Holy Spirit. They'd been baptized. Most of the, most of the people there were disciples. And we think there may have been as many as another 120 that were gathered together when the, the Pentecost occurred. But um, they had experienced the Holy Spirit. But what was different about this was that they were empowered and they were enabled to go and do something specific. They were able to go and speak in a language that others can hear. Where I'm going with all of that is that laity, it is up to us. There wasn't a clergy or a rabbi in that room when the Holy Spirit fell on Pentecost. It was laity. And I think that that's so important for us to understand that, that we can't continue to keep looking to our clergy and stuff to do this work, to create the beloved community. It's really about us. And it's not just creating the beloved community in our worship spaces. It's creating the beloved community in every space that you and I, we walk into every single day. That's to me what, what becoming the beloved community will be is when we get to a place where we're living our lives, that, that we are being that beloved community wherever we are. And I, I know I still got a ways to go with it, but wow. Yeah. Hey, yes. That's the four P's of laity. <laughs> I love it. Yes. That's right. That's right. I agree. Please, laity, we need you, right? We need you to start these programs. The pastors can do it on their own. And also, I would say, laity, and to everybody here, teach this to your kids. Teach this to your college students. I wish I was having college students would come because their United Methodist mom or grandma told them about the beloved community and that they wanted to start one at Wesley. You know, like teach it to your college students too, because even college students, they're still in the awareness stage. They, they still, many people don't know about the beloved community. And I wanted to also highlight David Williamson, because if you want to get involved with systemic changes and um, you want to get involved with the beloved community, with public witness and policies, David Williamson runs that program and he'd be a great person to connect with. Um, but I want, did want to just make a comment on the, the mission of vital signs. And I would say this, we need a bigger, a greater imagination. Don't, don't limit it. We often limit ourselves as Christians. Our vision sometimes is too small. We need imagination. But for example, what does it mean to be baptized? Okay, this is a missional vital sign. It's a public ceremony where people make an announcement to the community that they have been transformed and they are ready to live a new life, right? Well, if we expand that metaphor what about the person who's been living for themselves their entire life, has never been involved in philanthropic work, and wants to join something like the beloved community? That is a form of baptism in my mind, right? And, and, and it's about expanding the vision, being more imaginative, like that profession of faith story. Like that person has hope in humanity now. And is that not enough? The Bible says, how can you say you love God, but you don't love your neighbor? And so loving neighbor is in some ways loving God. And that person has hope in humanity. So a bigger imagination. And I love that locations. What if we celebrate the locations where we're witnessing? But, but one of the biggest things is check your heart. This is one of the, my generation used to say, check your heart. Don't just be there because you're trying to manipulate people. Be there, be your whole self, be open to learning. Don't go in there thinking you have all the answers. Christianity is, you know, in that hierarchy of things, the best. And, and don't go in with that spirit. Go in there with loving God, loving neighbor, opening up your mind, listening, changing your, your stereotypes and whatever you may be, conceptions you had going in. Go in there with an open heart and open mind. Um, anything else? Anything else, Alice, you want to share? You know, no, not really. Other than I just, I, the last the last thought that comes to my mind is, you know, um, if it weren't for the way people created the beloved community around me, 
I don't know that I would even be involved in this risk today, to be honest with you, everyone. And so I just I just want to claim that that it comes right back to what you're saying. It's it's what we do with our relationships, it's what we do the way we, we treat one another, when we think about one another. And again, I come back to that whole thing. You know, it's not ours to judge. We're just we're just supposed to be the messengers, right? We're we're the marketing folks, not the management. Well, thank you, Alice, and thank you to everybody who joined us in our workshop. I was so excited. I saw all the faces, and I got so excited. I had to slow down a little bit. I'm sorry if I misspoke. I might have said a couple of things. I regret I got to listen to the audio later, um, but I want to let you know that Alice in here can also serve as a resource. So if you ever want us to speak to your small group, if you ever want us to, I can guest preach this message in your churches. If it's not too far away, I'm in Orlando, so it's a little bit of a hike. Um, I know, for example, Alice is speaking at a youth group in, in Winter Park, teaching the message of the beloved community. We are here as a resource for you. Um, and we also want to encourage you to um, take the next step. What is the next step for you? Is it to continue to learn? That's great. Is it to participate in something, right? Is it to talk to your pastor? Is it to convince one person to start that little community dinner? Take the next step. Um, and we encourage you to listen to our table talks too. We have speakers there um, every month on a bunch of different topics that will continue to stir your faith, um, stir this these types of programs. You can find them on the conference website. Just Google Table Talks, Beloved Community, Florida Conference. And let's continue to spread this message, brothers and sisters, family of God and everybody. Let's continue to spread this message of Beloved Community. Amen? Amen. All right, so thank you to everybody. And this concludes our workshop. So I'll be hanging around if, if, you, if somebody wants to talk. But if you need to sign off, Go ahead and do so, um, but I'll be hanging around for a little while.